0: Good morning. morning. How's it going? Raise your hand if you're awake. (laughs) Thank you, Otto. All right. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your good purposes. How little we really understand, Lord. Really the depths of Your love and Your kindness to us. Thank You for what we do understand. And we thank You, Father, that it is Only because of you. And so, Lord, I pray that the immediate and yet eternal results of what we talk about today will be nothing but praise and adoration for the kind of God that you are. So I pray, Father, that you would make us attentive to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take your Bibles and go with me to 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, <clears throat> today we are going to be talking about the uh, the Spirit of God in preaching, of course to make that assumption that the Spirit of God is involved in a setting just like this, where there's a preacher and uh, the Scriptures and a congregation, um, we're, we're making an assertion that the Bible actually says this, that, that it that it is something that it affirms. Why would the Spirit of God be here now? Let me make four points before we get into our text, and then I'm going to smash all these points together. Okay. the first point is this. The Holy Spirit. Who's been the topic of our uh, or the subject of our sermons for the last several weeks. The Holy Spirit. This is going to come as a shocker. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. Now, that may be really, you know, I don't know. Holy Spirit 101 kind of stuff. That's a real simple thing to say. But at least for me, and maybe for you, that clears up a whole lot of misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. I heard A.W. Tozer one time say in a sermon about the Holy Spirit, he said, if you want to get to know the Holy Spirit better, look no further than to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when you see Jesus speaking, that's the Spirit speaking. And and when you see Jesus acting in the Gospels and doing things, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you can't separate the Holy Spirit from Jesus. So their nature and their character are essentially the same. Second thought here is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. In fact, that was Jesus' kind of favorite nickname in John 14 and 15 and 16 when he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was his favorite nickname for the Spirit, is the Spirit of Truth. So Jesus himself clarifies there there is an unbreakable union between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And I want to... Well, they're neither one here. I'm looking for Caleb and Darren. But they, in their sermons um, over the, la- the last couple of weeks, they pointed this out. And um, I appreciate that. You can't separate the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. And in fact, it's kind of dangerous and foolish to assert something to be wrought of the Holy Spirit when it doesn't come directly from Scripture. Third thought. According to John 16, the Holy Spirit is the driving force behind the conviction of sin. John or Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Fourth thought. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit alone... To regenerate a dead heart. It is not the work of a person standing behind a pulpit. According to Paul, as he is writing to Titus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that renews and regenerates us. Now, let me smash all these together because the Holy Spirit is the person of Jesus and that the Spirit's ministry revolves around the Word and the Holy Spirit is the driving force to convict sinners of sin and their need for a Savior and the Holy Spirit applies the cross work of Christ to a sinner, then the Holy Spirit must be active during times of biblical teaching and preaching. How many of you are at home team? And have been last. Okay. <clears throat> last semester, when we started the book of Mark, when we got into chapter 1, the first thing that Mark records Jesus saying is, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we see in the book of Mark, in the same chapter, there were people that were gathering around Jesus with. Uh, demon-possessed and, and, and people that were needed healing. And he would go from place to place. and in, in, At least in the first chapter, he, he's, he's leaving a crowd of people with those needs to go on to the next place to preach. And he says, for this is the reason why I came. We get into uh, the book of Acts and the great move of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is a demonstration that the preaching of the gospel is the priority of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who's setting aside men for the gospel ministry. It's the Spirit of God convicting and converting thousands at Pentecost. It's the Spirit of God who desires for the nations to call upon the name of the Lord and turn from worthless idols. I would argue that today um, the Spirit of God is bound and determined to be present in our meeting on the sole basis of the authority of Scripture. So, he's not here, praise God, he's not here for the quality of leadership. (laughs) Or, the sincerity of any of us that are sitting here today. Or, the fact that we have a 200 year history. It can only be that we, that are here today... The needy and the desperate have come together gathering around the word of God. We are in the worst kind of shape imaginable if the Holy Spirit does not move and work in our lives. Now, let's take a minute and look at 1 Corinthians. Well, it will be a little bit longer than a minute, okay? That's a... Pastoral way of saying this is going to take a little while. okay. So <clears throat> the Corinthians were they were shallow. They were very, very shallow, okay? Um, and in verses 10 through uh, 17, Paul is comes right out swinging at them because they are elevating gospel preachers, And when you elevate a gospel preacher, you've inevitably watered down the gospel itself. Everybody got that? Okay, It's a really bad idea to 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 say, "Oh, I really like Paul," or "I really like Apollos," or "I really like Cephas." And that's, but yet yeah, that's what they were doing. and so so what Paul does is not what a typical pastor who has some distance between him and his church would do. Every pastor knows that there's a couple of troublemakers in the congregation. Okay, I just so you know, there's a little secret for you, little Ministry tidbit: There's troublemakers. Every congregation has them, and so Paul doesn't go. Oh, all right. He doesn't. He's not writing, going, "Well, I think it's probably so and so, and here's what you do with so and so." And you know, he doesn't get into the nitty gritty of of <clears throat> which people might actually be causing all the problems here. Instead, what Paul does is he goes back to the gospel. So to summarize what we're doing I'm going to give you 3 Ps okay the first one is the power of the gospel and that's in verses 18 through 25 and then we're going to look at the people of the gospel in verses 26 through 31 and then we're going to look at the preacher of the gospel in all of chapter 2 so bear with me this is going to take just a little bit okay so the power of the gospel the people of the Gospel and the preacher of the gospel so let's <clears throat> let's take a minute here and look at man, I said it again i 'm really sorry I should jeez let 's just look at verse eighteen, okay the power of the Gospel, notice what he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. how many have you heard this verse before like who knows I mean hundreds of times probably so Because we've heard this so often, we're going to take a second and just substitute some words. Okay? You're going to help me with this. So, um, for the word of the cross is, substitute the word folly for another word. Somebody? Anybody? What's another word for folly? What? Foolish? Okay. I, I agree. Another one? Rubbish. Good. Anything else? Another one? Silliness. Silliness. Anybody else got one? You guys are being nice. Lies. Lies? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Intolerable. 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 Good. I know it's early. This time change is killing us. What's another one? Craziness? craziness. Yes. Good. How about idiotic? I know we're all maybe not supposed to say that this early on a Sunday. Or, or stupid. I know that's, that's not a good word. Kids don't repeat it unless it actually applies to something like in this situation. Okay? So, what's, <laughs> well, I know that, but... <laughs> all right. But thank you for uh, your self-control. This morning. Appreciate it. For the word of the cross is silliness, intolerable, foolish, crazy, full of lies. It, it is, it's stupid. The word of the cross is stupid, it's idiotic, it's irrelevant. To those who are perishing. What's another phrase for those who are perishing? Lost. What's another one? Huh? Damned? Cursed? Blinded? Huh? Mm Yeah. Yeah. So the word of the cross, okay, the word of the cross would be the what? The starts with a G, ends with gospel. Gospel, very good. For the gospel is stupid to those who are headed to hell. The gospel is intolerable to those who are damned. I think sometimes we need to hear this just... Substituting a few different words to get the the drift of what Paul is actually saying for the word of the cross is folly it 's foolishness it 's stupid it 's irrelevant it doesn 't mean anything to those who are headed to hell, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, so Paul is not saying that we're we 're Christians because we come we, we've we think that the gospel it meets our expectations of of a good world view. I mean, it, well, this has got some good presuppositions, and we agree with that. Or, or maybe we—it's—it's uh, it's coming to, to the cross by just the sheer power of logic. Or, or uh, I like the the um, I like the uh, the practical results of the Christian religion. So therefore, I'm a Christian. That—that that, none of that works. Paul is saying that it's not just us coming to, to 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 terms with something that we might agree with intellectually. He is saying that if we understand the word of the cross, it is the power of God. Not just one thing that God does over here on the side, or or this is just one tiny aspect of His character. No, this is the power of God, and He proves this, and He by Look at verses 19 through 21. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what We preach to save those who believe. So, Paul in these verses is basically calling out the intelligentsia. Come on, I dare you to come and reason your way to the gospel. It can't be done, it cannot be done because God Himself has chosen to demolish our wisdom. Through his message of salvation. If you had a billion years, you'd never conclude that the best way for us to be saved is the way that God has chosen for us to be saved. In fact, that's the point of verse 21. It's impossible for a person to come to Jesus by way of reason. But rather, it's basically accepting a message of sheer foolishness. At least according to man's standards. Notice verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So now he cites specific examples of of the way man has accepted the gospel. So he he turns to the Jews. Jews demand signs. And the Jews were convinced signs were necessary. And not just any ordinary, run-of-the-mill kind of miraculous signs that Jesus did... But they wanted to see signs that they expected. And they wanted to see signs that they longed for. The most convincing proof of their Messiah would not be to die on a Roman tool of torture. That does not work. Rather, their Messiah, what they wanted to see was their Messiah come with an iron fist and whip Rome, or anybody that might oppress them. So for the Jew, in the first century, Jesus was a complete epic fail. Or, as Paul would put it, a complete stumbling block. To the Greeks, on the other hand, who were constantly speculating and theorizing about life and divine things, to be told that a divine being died for humanity? That's nonsensible. That doesn't make any sense. They were constantly attempting to please and appease their pantheon of false gods. It just wasn't sensible for a god to go to such lengths to rescue humanity. Especially a god... Who had died such a horrible and disgusting death as Jesus? So that's why when Paul was in Athens, they kind of laughed and mocked his message of the resurrection. It's just a foolish story. Doesn't mean anything. Are things different today? No. Oh, we're a modern society. We don't think like this, right? This is yes. Yes, yes, we do. Things have not changed. We're not any different. How many people are rooted in bitter defiance against God because they went to Him with a certain set of expectations and beliefs that weren't biblical, and God failed them? God failed because He didn't meet their expectations. These are the people who say things like, well, I tried Christianity, but it just didn't work. (laughs) As if Jesus is just like a a coat that you try on for a little bit. Ah, It's a little tight in the shoulders. I think I'm going to take this off and try something else. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't do that with Christianity. It's not like test driving a car. Or they judge God by saying things like, well, if I were God, I would fill in the blank. And they, hmm, we'll get to it. Um, (laughs) I heard somebody say, um, I don't know, this is a news report or something. um, God had nothing to do with Donald Trump becoming president, really. So there are certain things that God does, and then He just steps back and doesn't do anything. Sovereign Lord, sometimes, right? When you turn these people to the gospel itself, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because they've they've heard God's case in their minds and they've already they've already passed judgment on God. God has been found wanting. God's message of the gospel is completely irrelevant. When the God that they believe in is failing to fix the country's political problems or the God that they believe in isn't bettering uh, their current standard of living or touching up their marriage or whatever the case may be. They go to God with a certain set of expectations that are not biblical and therefore they pass judgment on God because he has failed them. Or you have, on the other hand, all these deep thinkers that have somehow reasoned away God. Again, They're toying with false assertions, judging the God of scriptures and not ever finding a logical path to God. Um, They have intellectually disqualified Jesus from ever being their Messiah because he doesn't make any sense. Nothing has changed. Neither his message nor the condition of our souls. Jesus is still the Messiah and we are still miserable rotten sinners just think about the amount of arrogance that it requires for a being who at one time didn't exist to have to be conceived birthed and then die in a little tiny span of time And in that little tiny span of time, to shake their fist at a being who was never created, gives life, and will never die. (laughs) By the way, that's us without grace. Notice what he says in verse 25. For the foolishness of God... For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wow. Maybe maybe we've heard this enough that we're not... Stop and think about this. God's absolute dumbest... That he could ever think, and the weakest moment that God could ever have are superior to the wisest and strongest of men. Now, just for the record, God isn't dumb or weak. Only we could think God to be dumb and weak by slaying his son. And we could only come to the conclusion that it's a dumb and weak idea because we really don't understand what it takes to save people like us. In other words, to think the gospel message is dumb and weak is to think that God himself is dumb and weak and that our wisdom and our strength are superior to God's. It's no wonder Humanity doesn't flock to the gospel. Because this is our attitude towards Him. Now, to keep us tethered here to the context, remember that the Corinthians, now that we've said all of this, remember the Corinthians are, are elevating preachers. <laughs> kind of funny. Sad. What are preachers? People, that's it. It's not the, the preacher of the gospel being the power of God. It's the gospel itself which is the power of God. And So, to keep us good and humble here, Paul turns now to the people of the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, now, he turns to these, these poor, self inflated Corinthian people. And what kind of people were they? According to worldly standards, these guys were not winning the science fairs. You know what I'm saying? These guys were not, you know, world class weightlifting champions. Corinth was a was a port city, a merchant city. Not a lot of nobility there. Just dock workers and business owners. Not people of noble rank. Now, why? Why would God save people like that? Well, or that matter, why would he save people like us? we're really not that different. Notice verses 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice, three times over, Paul says, God chose, God chose, God chose. And he did this so that no one can stand before God and say, I'm saved because, Lord, I figured you out. Father, I reasoned my way to you. Or probably what we hear more often is, I found Jesus. Jesus. No, you didn't. He's not a kid lost at Walmart, okay? You didn't find Jesus. According to Paul, Jesus found you. You, if you are a saved person, are saved because God chose you. By saying that He chose us, that we're in Him. We're not just talking about a home in heaven. Paul lists out what Jesus is to us now. And he doesn't list just a ticket to heaven. He just doesn't. He says He's our wisdom. And by that, did you know that there are things that Jesus says that's completely opposite of what the world's wisdom says? Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Again, let me reword one for you. Enslave yourself to fellow believers. The greatest among you shall be your your slave. No, it says servant. In the Greek it says doulos, which is slave. Those are not things that the, the, the world likes to hear. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies enslave yourself to someone else? But if you're saved, you have to trust His wisdom over what your own wisdom might say or definitely what the world's wisdom might say. But He's not just our wisdom. Paul says He's our righteousness. So you're not saved by your merits or your goodness. You're saved because God made Him who knew no sin at all to be sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in Him. So you are not saved because you are righteous. You are saved because you've been given righteousness. And that righteousness is Christ. And that's not all. So he's not just our wisdom. He's not just our righteousness. He's also our sanctification. And I've heard pastors say this before. They'll say that salvation is the work of God, but being sanctified is completely entirely up to you. Well, we do have to choose, don't we? We have to choose to go to church. We have to choose to open up our Bibles. And we have to choose to study the Scripture. So how does that work with... With Jesus being our sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's on you. Why? Why would you work it out? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. He is our sanctification. So if you even begin to discipline yourself in a life of holiness before God, it's because Christ is at work in you. That's not all. He's not just our wisdom. He's not just our righteousness. He's not just our sanctification. He's also our redemption. So that on that day when we stand before God and He gives us a pass into His eternal abode to be with Him forever it will not be you boasting in your choice. Lord, I just know you're going to let me in because I made the right choice. Man, no, not at all. It's going be, it's going to be because he is stamped on your soul, paid in full. That's the only reason. You couldn't bribe your way into heaven. Millions have tried. They come before God with their works and they attempt to prove to God how good they actually are, and it doesn't work. Because until Christ purchases you off of the auction block of sin, you are going to remain there. So, well, how do, we, how do we get the gospel then? How does this get to us? Paul turns then, in chapter 2, to the preacher of the gospel. Notice with me the first five verses. He says, and, when I, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So now Paul comes to the Corinthians. And when he came to the Corinthians, I should say, um, in the Gospel, or in the book of Acts, he was a one-message kind of guy. Now, you have to understand that... By this singular preaching, he was setting himself apart from all the highly regarded street preachers who had waxed with great eloquence on any number of subjects. He deals with this. get time to read through 2 Corinthians and these super apostles. But Paul was decidedly not one of those kinds of speakers. Rather, he came in a complete simplicity, preaching one message, and that message was Christ crucified. He says that this message was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. Now, just to clarify, when he says it was a demonstration of power... Does that mean that there were all kinds of miracles happening around Paul? People were being healed, demons were being cast out, all that kind of stuff? Not necessarily. See, he's already discounted that. Because that's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for the signs. There's ample amounts of signs in that way. I don't think that's what he's talking about. What's the greatest demonstration of the power of the gospel? Believing. Think about it. People heard it from a guy who wasn't trying to wax eloquently. It wasn't the power of his uh, abilities to persuade. Rather, the gospel itself is the power of God. And the reason we can say this is because when people actually hear the gospel and they actually believe, their lives are actually changed. Now here's what's crazy. Here in America, we say we believe the same gospel. We believe the same gospel that... The woman who left her house with her empty pails at noon to go to the well at noon, the heat of the day, to avoid people because she's living a life that wasn't right. And she meets Jesus. She drops her water bucket... Runs back into town and tells people, come and meet the man who told me everything i would ever done. This is somebody who was living in shame. Now, why is that? Because she met Christ. That's why. It's the power of the gospel. This is the same gospel that takes a legalized thief, which is what any tax collector was in those days, And turns him not only away from thievery, but to an abundant life of giving. Zacchaeus was never the same. We claim the same gospel. The disciples would drop their current way of life, their nets their tax collecting, their political aspirations, and all their national pride. Why? To follow Christ. We claim the same gospel. But is our job more important? Are our pleasures more important? Are, is our retirement more important? Is the comforts of this life more important? We never, never get around to the abandonment of the things of this world. Have we really grasped the gospel? According to James, that if, if we hold fast to the things of this world and claim Christ, according to James, we're committing adultery before God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is adultery To claim him Jesus said you can you can't serve two masters You will love the one and you will hate the other You'll be devoted to one and despise the other So if we if our understanding of the gospel Is something that just is on the side, but it has not radically altered our life. Have we really grasped the gospel that's in the Bible? When God claims men's lives, He claims all of their lives. And again, this doesn't come back to the preacher, it comes back to the God of the gospel. Paul turns to this in verses six through thirteen. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is—excuse uh, me. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, the gospel, that is the mystery that Paul is referring to here, the the secret wisdom of God, is revealed only because God, by his spirit, reveals it. That's it. And to prove this Paul gives an illustration. No one can know what a person thinks unless that first person actually speaks, right? And this is where miscommunications happen in in marriages. Well, you gave me that look. The look look can start some fights, you know what I'm saying? But until somebody opens their mouth and actually speaks in regards to how they feel or think, We can't finally know how they feel or how they think. In the meantime, we're left in the dark, speculating and wondering. Likewise, no one can hear the gospel and no one can come to Jesus unless God chooses to open their eyes and ears to see and to hear. If he does not, then they remain in darkness. So, this means that in the final analysis, I mean, I, I, I called this section the preacher of the gospel, and so far you're probably just assuming that it was Paul, because that's who Paul was talking about. But the truth is, preacher of the gospel is the Holy Spirit. Because I can do everything... In my power to convince you today of how good Jesus is, and that you need to turn to Him, but unless God speaks, unless God chooses to reveal Himself, you will remain in darkness. I heard Francis Chan talk about this one time. He was his his uh, talking to witnessing to somebody on a plane, and and it might have been a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or somebody, and and he realized in that conversation that it that it, that there's a, there's a third party when a Christian witnesses. See, a Mormon and Jehovah witness, they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. He's not there. So all they've got is the, is the power of their own ability to persuade people. But when we witness to people, we're not the end result of them believing. It's that we need them to encounter God Himself. Otherwise, they'll never be saved. So Paul brings this conclusion in 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are stupid. They are foolish. They are crazy. They are irrelevant to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, and this is awesome, we have the mind of Christ. So, the things of God will remain unacceptable to a lost person. they will remain a complete folly because they need the Spirit of God to change their hearts. And by that, another way of putting this is that He gives us the mind of Christ. When we become Christians, when we when we, when we are saved, we are given the mind of Christ. Alright, so me some applications on this I have three but after I went back over this last night I thought you know what I have to add a fourth to this so um, and I've said it a couple of times but it bears saying again don't elevate preachers to a status they don't deserve please don't do that to us okay please don't don't do it it It's not worth the heartache that comes with it. Direct all of your praise and all of your thanksgiving to the God from whom all blessings flow. Please take us in fact, where was we don't have that that silly goblet that was up here, you know you know what we need is not some goblet that looks like the oh what's the thing in the uh yeah the Holy Grail you know that's that's silliness you know what we need up here is a salt shaker take everything that we say with a grain of salt this is the word is the gospel it's not the preacher my first official application thought here is uh, the doctrine of election is meant to promote humility. It's all through this. And I, I, I know maybe you're here and you're struggling with that, that thrice-repeated phrase, God chose, God chose, God chose. It's okay to think, man, I don't think I understand this. Great! You're not supposed to. Look again at this, at this. In verse 27 of chapter 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, and we can sit there and go, I don't get this. It's okay. Verse 29 gives us a little bit of insight. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. So not only do we not elevate preachers, but when we think about the fact that if we're saved at all, it's all the power of God, that's not supposed to make you sit back and go, man, I'm great. Aren't I great? No. We're supposed to sit back, and when we recognize what kind of people we are, which is a really disgusting thing, and we think about how amazing God's love is for us, we will glory in God. Because God has chosen the weak and the foolish, the ignorant guy, Right here is all God. It's not us. Second thought. Let the scoffers scoff. Please don't let it bother you. It's going to happen. W. Harold Mayer in his comments on chapter 2 verse 16 says... Let the philosophers of Greece and the Jews in their sign-seeking jeer and mock. They cannot really judge the message of Paul, who has the mind of Christ, because they do not have the Spirit of God and cannot judge spiritual truths. Take this to heart when you're witnessing. Witnessed to a a lady at work. um, While we were working, I spent probably an hour or more with this lady. And after the end of that hour, she's like, I just really don't understand. And I, and I, I mean, then I, I was like, okay, I'm going to bring this down to the brass tacks. I said, look, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. God knows this and sent you a Savior. Trust Him. That's it. It's, it's not complicated. Actually, it's funny, is that lady. I found out several months later, went to another believer on the line that I work on, and he was sharing the gospel with her. And her interpretation of all of that time that I spent telling her the gospel is, she said, Jason told me I was going to hell because I was living in adultery. That was it? Let him scoff. and and until the Spirit of God moves on their life, they'll remain in darkness. And they'll continue to sit on the throne of judgment against God himself. So be encouraged. Because he can't open their eyes. Third thought. It is really vital that we understand who this God is. That we understand and fully grasp, hopefully, what the gospel is. And I think that's the point that Paul is ultimately getting at we got to get back to an understanding of the gospel and we have to get back to an understanding of christ um there's a poem that's written by the same guy who wrote amazing grace and it's it's called what think you of christ john newton he says what think ye of christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him as jesus appears in your view As he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. But these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched or lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I dare not confide in his blood nor on His protection rely, unless I am sure He is God. Some call Him Savior in word, but mix their own works with their plan, and hope He His help will afford when they have done all that they can. If sayings prove rather to light, a little they own they may fail. They purpose to make up full weight by casting Christ's name on the scale. Some style him the pearl of great price. And say he's the fountain of joys. Yet feed upon folly and vice. And cleave to the world and its toys. Like Judas the Savior they kiss. And while they salute him betray Ah, what will professions like this avail in that terrible day? And then Newton, in his last verse, says, If asked what of Jesus I think, although my best thoughts are poor, I say, He's my meat and my drink, my life. And my strength and my store. My shepherd, my husband, my friend. My savior from sin and from thrall. My hope from beginning to end. My portion, my Lord, my all. Let's pray. Father, confront us where we sit. Do we really believe this foolish message? And if we dare to make that claim, Lord, has it really changed us? I hope so. We know that if it has, Lord, (laughs) may all of our bragging and all of our boasting, and all of our pride, be placed upon You. Because when I look at me, what am I? Frail, broken, rebellious sinner. But wow, Your grace is amazing. May it be our experience, each one of us in this room today. And if there are things here, Father, worldly things that we're holding fast to, oh God, open our eyes. Help us to see. And we will praise the work of your Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.